The key thing is not beating ourselves up when that fear shows up and then engaging it and using it to understand it and ultimately then prepare and use it as fuel to take purposeful action. You're listening to Build a Better Wellness Biz. I'm your host, Jeremy Ants. In this episode, I'm talking with Akshay Nanavati. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, overcame drug addiction, PTSD, and alcoholism that drove me to the brink of suicide, recovered from that wrote a book called Fearvana, and what I do now is everything around that concept of Fearvana, which is around basically helping people develop a positive relationship to the experience of pain and suffering of any kind so they can experience a life of greater bliss and meaning. Speaking of pain and suffering, my introduction to Akshay came in the form of a post on his Instagram profile last year, with a photo of him wearing a harness strapped to a massive tire that he had just spent an hour pulling around a parking lot. This, the caption read, was day one of training for an upcoming expedition. Next year, I'm planning a pretty hefty uh, expedition calendar, which I'm really excited about. One will be uh, the last degree to the North Pole. Another will be a ski crossing of the Patagonian ice cap. And then finally, a ski expedition to the South Pole from the Mesner start, which will be about 45 days in Antarctica skiing to the South Pole. As you can tell, Akshay is very familiar with pain, fear, and suffering, both the type brought on by outside circumstances beyond his control, as well as the type he now seeks out for, well, fun. And while his experiences are certainly extreme, in navigating and mapping his own journey through fear and suffering, he stumbled upon some insights that we can all apply to the experiences of fear, pain, discomfort, and suffering we all experience throughout the course of our lives. In addition to his concept of fearvana, Akshay and I talk about how to develop a healthy relationship with the problems you encounter I'll be happy when I get six-pack abs, a million dollars, the house by the beach, the relationship. That's a lifetime of misery we are setting ourselves up for because one, we're not only enjoying the momentary adventure of rising above this challenge, we are waiting to get there. And when we get there, wherever there may be, we'll find some new problems. So you kind of balance that out by first off, just falling in love with the experience of overcoming one problem at a time because it's on the other side of every suffering that you lead to a new awakening. And how to actually go about building up your confidence. Confidence is the result, not the fuel. Don't expect to be confident as you step out. So to your point about, I don't know what to do, I'm choosing my path, don't expect to be confident. Confident is the result, not the fuel. So how do you build that? First, have clarity, commitment, conviction, courage. Once you take action, you will develop capabilities. Through capabilities, you develop confidence. So that's clarity, commitment, conviction, courage, capabilities. I call that the five C's to confidence. While it's easy to focus in on the darker, difficult themes of Akshay's work, at its core, Virvana is a framework for tapping into greater joy and happiness. Forward from Viktor Frankl, one of Akshay's conclusions about happiness has been that rather than going out and finding it, we first need a reason to be happy. Akshay believes that this reason to be happy is often tied back to what he calls our worthy struggle. So the fundamental ethos of everything I do with Fearvana is to help people find, live, and love their worthy struggle. And I call it your worthy struggle because whatever path you pursue, it's going to be hard. You are going to struggle. And so I don't like that term, follow your passion. I think it's a good thing to have passion for what you do. But when people say follow your passion, it conveys this idea that it's going to be easy and filled with sunshine and rainbows and unicorns. Or, you know, if you love what you do, it'll never feel like a day of work in your life. But that's nonsense. You know, I love what I do, but it is work. My expeditions are work. Tire dragging is work. My business is work. Writing a book was work, you know. And so I call it that's that's what I call the worthy struggle. It's not just about suffering for the sake of suffering, right? It's that struggle worthy of who you are and who you want to do, who you want to be for the world. So it doesn't have to be 
dragging tires. I'm dragging tires. It sucks. It's suffering, but it's training for something specific, right? That's what we said. That's my worthy struggle is these expeditions that I pursue in skiing across Greenland, climbing mountains, running ultra marathons, building a business, but it could be playing a guitar, you know, it could be playing chess, writing movies, whatever it may be. We each have our worthy struggle. And that's the idea is to follow that path. And when you follow your worthy struggle, happiness will happen as a side effect. And that's kind of the huge flaw that we have in this idea of pursuing happiness. I mean, it's so fundamental to the, not just the American ethos, right? The pursuit of happiness is right in there, but the modern culture is about pursuing what brings us joy, what brings us happiness. And that's a hugely flawed ideal because when we pursue this thing to make our life quote unquote happy, what happens is then we view suffering as a barrier on that path. But if you pursue your worthy struggle, if you pursue meaning, then suffering is not a barrier on the path to happiness. It's a part of that adventure. It's a part of it. It's a part of the journey. And it makes the whole adventure that much more enjoyable because we will suffer. I mean, midst of a pandemic hit the globe, everybody's going through various degrees of suffering as a result of it. I mean, this is just one example of life punching us in the face. Everybody's got their own version, right? And even if we don't, even if life doesn't hit us, we're seeking a meaningful challenge. That's the essence of a worthy struggle. So when you fall in love with that meaning, when you pursue that higher purpose, that meaning, then whatever the suffering on, whether it's life punching you in the face or whether it's a chosen suffering that you're seeking, it becomes that much more purposeful, much more enjoyable. And you fall in love with the experience of suffering because you know it's serving a worthy challenge. It's serving who you want to be for the world. Yeah. And I think probably most people who are listening to this have experienced this in the past. Like if you have started a business, if you are an entrepreneur, you probably didn't decide to do that because this was going to be an easier route than punching the clock every day. Like you knew this was going to be more challenging, but there were these benefits that you knew you would receive or at least hoped like more for freedom, fulfillment, impact, happiness, whatever that might be. And so, you know, people are probably somewhat familiar with that already. I think the thing that still like there's there's this idea of, of chasing or, or finding your passion and that's going to motivate you and then there's that feels kind of like well it's hard to for me to like find out you know what i'm actually passionate about you like try all these things and you know you're not really feeling much passion for it and you're, you that keeps you from starting so I, I i really do like the idea of using the worthy struggle as a frame but i think that that can also feel pretty high-minded and abstract where I think a lot of people start out, they they start their business and they're like, okay, like, yeah, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to create something that has uh, a benefit on other people. And then you get into it in like the day-to-day grind and you need to find like another level because it just becomes the norm kind of. So how do you kind of take that from this high-minded idea of, you know, this, this worthy struggle that is going to, I think people immediately think this needs to be their defining life work that they need to find like today before they take action. Like, how do you get people to scale that back to like what they should be doing today, this week, this month, this year? Got you. No, love it. Great question. So when you when you think about your worthy struggle, so there's there are those people we'll kind of put as the outliers who kind of know it when they're five years old, right? They they've started. They're gonna play chess. Like I have one person that I work with. She's about to be a grandmaster of chess. She knew when she was a kid. So let's just if you do, fantastic, good for you. I certainly was not one of them. It was when I was about thirty three when I finally got clear on who I wanted to be, right? So let's say you're not in that category. How do you then kind of find the worthy struggle? And you're sitting there, you listen to this. The way you want to start is work backwards from the future. So look into the future and look at what is a lifestyle that people are living that appeals to you. So for some people, it might be traveling. Some people have no desire. They want to stay at home with their family. And there's again, there's no right, wrong, good, bad here, right? You want to find the ingredients that you don't want 
As, it's easier to often start with what you don't want in your lifestyle, right? We, it's, we, it's easier to think about, I don't want this, that, and the other thing, right? We kind of start getting clear. And then we say, okay, here's what I do want. So I'm working backwards in the future. And once I have a sense of it, right, then I look at who's, who's living that lifestyle. What are they doing? How are they doing it? Who do they have to be? What, how are they creating that world for themselves? And then I start looking at people. Okay, that's the person who's who has some semblance of the life that I want to live. How did he get there? What did he do? And I start kind of working backwards from there, and then I choose a path. Now, look, you're not going to love inherently what you do like on that path. Like you said, whether you're starting a business, I hate tons of things that I do in my business, but I got to do it because I got to produce the results and because I know it's something more meaningful. Like you said, we get caught up in the day to day, right? Like sitting here, I might be typing, writing some copy on a sales letter or something, and it feels just like this grind sitting there typing on my laptop. But when I think about the long-term effect of this. This is leading to somebody's changing somebody's life permanently, right? Like when I'm writing my book, writing my book was a grind, man. It was an absolute grind. Extremely hard to write a book. But I what helped me finally finish it is recognizing that this is my life works. It's gonna, it's gonna change people's life. It's gonna save people's life. It saved the essence of what I shared. My book saved my own life from the darkest corners of my soul, right? So having that clarity of the greater why, but when you start that path, don't expect to enjoy it. So fall in love with the struggle and passion will be developed. Passion is not discovered. Passion is developed. Tons of examples of this. Like Michael Phelps used to be terrified of the water, started swimming, got stronger. Once you get stronger and you get better at something, you start to fall in love with it. I mean, tire dragging is always going to be miserable more than likely. (laughs) I also run ultra marathons. It's, and I used to be the kind of guy who hated short, like anything past even a hundred meters, like hated long distance running, only loved short distance. And now I just a few weeks ago, I did a 24 hour run, you know? So you develop a passion for these kind of things. So once you start with that clarity of what are the ingredients you want, working backwards from there, trying to analyze, okay, who are you? Who do you want to be? How does this sit with what, what aligns with you? Pursue a path and then stick to it. That's the thing is like obsess yourself on that path and and any crossroads you choose. Like you said, you could work that punch that clock, work a job, start a business. Any crossroads you choose, there is going to be a struggle. So the question to ask is not which passion do I want to follow, but which struggle am I willing to endure? Because we're not going to rise to the highest imagined version of ourselves. We are going to sink to the weakest version of ourselves. Like that, the, our struggle is going to stop us. Like they say that our a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? Same way within ourselves. Which struggle are you willing to endure? And then choose that path and commit yourself to it. Like give every part of your soul to that path. And then you'll start to develop a passion for it as you get stronger, as you get better, as you keep going. And then, you know, one one might ask, okay, how do I know when it's time to quit? That's when, as you kind of pursue, like maybe this is not for you. Like I've changed my path a lot. When I first joined the Marines, I wanted to go career Marines, career in the Marines. I didn't. I spent six years. I changed my path. Then I went and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to combat photography. At one point, I wanted to be a sponsored athlete. So I was kind of navigating if the path changes, that's not the end of the world. You know, we, we tend to have this kind of culture of instant gratification today, right? But it's okay if it does change. But the point is like, I gave six years to the Marines. It wasn't just, I mean, at that point you had a contract, so you couldn't leave even if you wanted to. But, but nonetheless, I was glad for it. I don't regret it one bit. It has contributed to the essence of who I am today and the work that I do today. So it's kind of working backwards from that future and then staying obsessed on the path and giving all of yourself to it. And you'll start to develop passion as you get better for it. Yeah. I love that idea of developing passion. So a few years ago, I walked 300 kilometers or almost 350 kilometers of the Camino de Santiago in uh, northern Portugal and Spain. And so uh, being back in Portugal now, uh, it was my birthday last weekend. And so my girlfriend is asking me, like, anything you want to do, we'll do that on your birthday. Because on her birthday, she is an opera. She has her master's in opera. So we went to an opera on her birthday, which 
I was like, it was good. Uh, it, luckily, it wasn't one of the five-hour variants. Uh, it was just at like <laughs> two and a half. So it, it was good. But uh, she was like, we get to do whatever I want on my birthday. And then on your birthday, you can do what we want. And so I was like, okay, we're going to go walk one day of the Camino out of Lisbon here. So we did a, about a 35-kilometer stretch. And by the end of the day, a lot of it was through like some industrial areas. You're on the outskirts of the city. There were some beautiful spots. But there was also a lot of like kind of shitty, ugly parts. And she was just like... I don't get it. Why do you love this so much? And I was like, well, yeah, actually, and she has this huge blister on her foot by the end of the day. Our legs are both killing us. And I'm like, well, actually, you need to do more of it before you develop that passion. You have to go through more suffering and you get into like day three, four or five when you've really been broken down. And then you're like, I love this. And so I, I totally get that where you like, sometimes you do a little bit of it and you're like, this sucks. And you kind of have to work through yeah. <laughs> that. And you're like, oh, there's something profound here. Yeah. Passion is developed through struggle, but you got to struggle for nothing. I mean, it's like babies when they walk, they don't walk smoothly when they first start. Nothing we we do when we first start are, is going to feel good. You have to be able to navigate that feeling of feeling really shitty, feeling awkward at it, being horrible at it and navigating that phase to start getting a little better, getting a little smoother. And then you start to develop the passion as you kind of enjoy it. You know, same thing with writing. I mean, it was hard, but I got gotten the flow of it and everything I do, you know, it started to develop that passion for it. Yeah. I also like how you talked about how there's not, it's easy, kind of like we talked about before to think of, there needs to be one guiding life purpose. And I think that where we get into this a little bit, as you look at any like ultra performer in any field, somebody who's achieved a ton of success. And a lot of times they are those people who they were three years old or five years old, and they knew like, this is the one thing. And of course they're going to be great at it if they've de dedicated their whole life. But there are plenty of people who have gone from thing to thing to thing. And I think that with those people, the people who didn't have clarity, it was that they committed fully to each of those things, even if they only did it for six months or a year or whatever. And it's not like you need to still commit and you have like, you're, you're free to change your mind at any point, but like commit to each thing until it's not serving you anymore. And then, you know, when you find that thing, you're committed to it already. You've go gone through that kind of dip period where you're like, okay, this kind of sucks. I don't know if I'm into it, but you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see this through. And you hit that point where it's like, oh, I realize that this is actually the thing because I've committed to all these things that weren't quite the right fit before this one I can actually feel is the thing. Yeah. And it'll give you that inner wisdom. You know, I heard once somebody once said, I can't remember where I heard this, but knowledge you learn from others, wisdom you learn from yourself. So you can sit here, read a book, listen to a podcast, and that's great. It might provide a spark, but the greatest lessons are in the doing. So to your point, you know, committing to the thing, you might feel like, okay, if I'm bouncing around all these things, but you're gaining wisdom, you're gaining life experience, and that is leading you to where you will eventually go. Like I said, I didn't know until I was 33. And now I'm extremely clear on my path. This is my life path. I know it till the day I die, but it took me a long time and a lot of bouncing around from things to think to get here. And again, no regrets because it's led to this grand adventure. I mean, ultimately life is meant to be lived, right? We have this one life and it's meant to be lived. And so experience that adventure, pursue these things. And it's, it's all part of the grand adventure, you know? Yeah. I think Steve Jobs has the quote about, you can only connect the dots in hindsight. Connect the dots backwards. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we've kind of been talking about how happiness is kind of born out of pursuing your worthy struggle and that there's a lot of effort and, and struggle and pain involved in that. And I was reading through this Instagram post that we mentioned before of you pulling the tires. And I was thinking about this thing that I had a bit of a disconnect there because I was thinking that, okay, when I picture the future and my future happiness, a big part of that happiness is things are going to be easy then. 
things will be easy in the future and that's why I'll be happy. Like I'm not going to be struggling with all these things that are frustrating me right now or that I'm having to work so hard at. And I think that this is true for a lot of people. You look, okay, well, 20 years from now, I just want to be, you know, on a beach. I'm not going to have all these things. I'll be done with that. But you kind of referenced this idea of continuing to pull the tire. And you, you mentioned at the end, you sign off the post, like, I guess this means that my future holds a lot of fucking tire dragging. So I think that that's really interesting in embracing this mentality that, yes, the future is actually going to be filled with struggle. And that is going to be a cause of happiness, um, whether that's building your business or skiing across Greenland or, or whatever it is that you've done. The thing is, though, like, I think I've definitely reached a point and it sounds like, you know, you struggled with suicide and I'm guessing you had some of these thoughts too, where you reach a point and where you're currently in the struggle and you're just like, like, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't keep this up. I can't keep going like this for another, you know, six months, year, five years, 10 years, rest of my life. So how do you balance that kind of like embracing that? Yes, the future is going to be full of struggle while also maintaining like hope and optimism and excitement for, you know, things being maybe better than they are now or, or just feeling fulfilled in life? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, I mean, when I was in that darkest moment, this was coming back from the war. You know, I lost a friend in the war, struggled with survivor's guilt, diagnosed PTSD, severe depression. That was when I hit, I mean, I was at a point drinking like a bottle of vodka a day, man, just binge drinking for days on end. And that was when I hit that mo moment when I was on the verge of suicide one morning after binge drinking about to pick up a knife and slit my wrist. But that was the moment that also changed everything and led to everything that I realize now about falling in love with the experience of suffering and realizing that, look, there's always going to be some suffering. Now, the suffering is different, but that's the reality is that, see, here's the thing, like progress is not the elimination of problems. Progress is the creation of new problems. So you balance that out by recognizing that there's going to be problems, but you'll have new problems. And it's the idea that believing I'll be happy when, right? I'll be happy when I get six pack abs, a million dollars, the house by the beach, the relationship. That's a lifetime of misery we are setting ourselves up for because one, we're not only enjoying the momentary adventure of rising above this challenge, we are waiting to get there. And when we get there, wherever there may be, we'll find some new problems. I mean, we know it. people who have a billion dollars, zero dollars, people who seemingly have everything. We see this with celebrities all the time. They still struggle. They still struggle. So fundamentally, when I came out of that darkness and what led me to the work that I do with Firavana is the recognition of falling in love with any kind of suffering and realizing that it's the rising above one problem at a time, climbing one hill at a time, one mountain at a time, that is the adventure. So you kind of balance that out by first off, just falling in love with the experience of overcoming one problem at a time, because it's on, it's on the other side of every suffering that you lead to a new awakening. So when I came out of that, now I seek it, right? I seek it by doing things like running 24 hours, skiing across Greenland, all kinds of things from building a business. And on the other side of every challenge is some new awakening, some new growth. So I seek that growth by seeking a new problem. If you don't have a problem in life, you're not going to grow, you know? So you got to seek that and you kind of, you balance the duality of living for this future target while living in the present. So it's always a good thing because we're, we're aiming for goals anyway, right? Like anytime we do anything on a micro level, if I'm talking to you right now. If I'm reading a book, there's a goal to get to the next book, next page, right? So we're always setting goals. So having clarity of purpose, having clarity of target gives our life that meaning. That's that worthy struggle. So I'm chasing that, but mostly it's living in the back of my mind. Like when I'm dragging tires, I'm not thinking about the North Pole or if I'm running 24 hours, I'm not thinking about 
the 24 hour mark. I'm thinking about the next hour because I lose my mind if I'm thinking about 24 hours when I'm two hour into the run, right? So you have the target. Like I came out there, set foot on the battlefield, my battlefield to finish a 24 hour run. But in the moment, I'm being there now to experience it, right? So it's really at, at the core of it, it's falling in love with suffering like embracing the seeking of problems, recognizing that progress is not the elimination of problems. Don't wait for problems to go away. When you get to a new problem is a new awakening. And on the other side of that, I mean, the, the, the path, the, the journey to that is endless, right? Until death, we can always be seeking another new awakening. And that's, that's kind of the beautiful thing because like ultimately also looking at it this way, like all growth is two things. Find what's working and do more of it. Find the problem, fix the problem. Every, like any growth in any context, financially, physically, spiritually, psychologically, it's those two things. So I'm always looking for, okay, what am I doing right? How can I scale it? And what's the next problem to solve? Right now, my big one physically is that tire dragging. That's miserable. (laughs) Soon, within the next few weeks here, I'll be doing like 12-hour sessions. That's going to be an absolute nightmare, right? But that's the current challenge. And it will lead me to this absolutely epic grand adventure that, for me, defines my life. Again, we all have our own worthy struggle. That's mine, right? But I know that you have to get to the other side of that suffering in order to find the next awakening. Yeah. So I feel like that falling in love with suffering is easier for someone like you or I to say when we're in a pretty good mental state right now and we are, you know, ambitious, we probably like latched onto that worthy struggle that we are are working towards. And so we have that, that big why in our minds. And so it's easy to say like, okay, I know there's going to be challenges. So like, let's just knock them down one at a time. But for someone who is at that low spot where maybe there is nothing or it feels like there's nothing that's working and that just everything is not working, like how do you just segment that up? Like how do you take someone who's at that like lowest of low points and say like, I know there's a lot of struggle in front of you. You have to fall in love with that. Like what's that first tiny step to start shifting your mindset? You know, for me, especially when I was at that low moment, when I was on the brink of suicide, the first at that moment, you don't want to be thinking too far ahead. This is kind of a mistake people make when they're trying to support others who are at that low moment. They try to inspire them. Right. But in that moment, when you hear somebody, how awesome, like, let's say, and this has happened, like somebody will share my story. All that does is make you feel worse about yourself. Like when I'm in that low moment, I don't want to hear about how awesome XYZ person is. It just makes me feel shittier and worse about myself. Right. So when I'm in that moment, you got to really with the first step, the first step is disassociating yourself from that. Like not like I don't, I never labeled myself an alcoholic. I don't, I, why would I put that label on me? So I didn't like, I don't, and again, I know if some people, if that works for you in AA, they kind of do that. I'm an alcoholic thing. I would never do that, but if it works great. So you disassociate yourself and you pause to recognize, okay, what is the demon that led me to this spot, right? And exercising that self-awareness and disassociating. So I had to say to myself, I'm not defined by my thoughts. I'm not defined by my feelings. I'm not defined by these experiences. We are not our thoughts. We are not our feelings. We are not our experiences. We are the thinker of our thoughts, the feeler of our feelings, and the experiencer of our experiences. So in that, when you're in that low moment, it's not about finding the worthy struggle and looking to the future, to to some forward gain in that moment you're just trying to avoid pain right if like at the core of human behavior is the need to avoid pain the desire to gain pleasure so in that moment forget about gaining pleasure forget about like aiming for a target you're just trying to get out of pain we got to break it down into the smallest tiniest step so if that means for example in that day i want to be i need to be sober for one day that's it you know you start there and then in that process, I'm disassociating myself. So I learned to say that I'm not, I'm not these thoughts. So like, for example, everybody said when I came back from the war that, you know, they, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was jumpy with loud noises. Uh, I struggled with survivor's guilt. I didn't like crowds. And as I started learning, like the problem was 
These are normal human responses to war. They're not a disorder. Post-traumatic stress is not indicative of post-traumatic stress disorder. They are two different things. But they said I had a disorder. And that was the problem because then it started to become me that, I oh, there's something wrong with me. But being jumpy with loud noises is my brain's normal response where I spent seven months in a war zone that loud noises equals death. So I better be hypervigilant. I didn't even choose that response. Most of what happens in our brain, we don't control. It's a subconscious pattern in response to external stimuli, to our genetics, and just how we operate, right? How the human animal animal operates. So what I learned to do was say, okay, that's not a disorder because by labeling a disorder, now I start to make that my self-identity. People start saying things like, I have depression. I am depressed. The problem with that is it becomes their self-identity. Instead of saying things like, my brain goes to a state of depression from time to time, but I am not my brain. My brain is not me, right? So recognizing we don't control most of what happens in our brain. So by doing that, I stopped saying I have a disorder. Even my survivor's guilt, for example, that's a normal human response to love, to compassion, to brotherhood in the military. And it's not just veterans who feel it. Most people who lose somebody, they feel, why them? Why, why, why did they die? Why not me, right? I mean, that's a normal human response. It's an expression of love. So guilt is not a quote unquote bad emotion. We, again, there's, we live in this world that demonizes emotions. There's bad emotions and good emotions. There are no bad or good emotions. They're only emotions. And it's up to us to decide what we do with them. So with my guilt, for a long time, what I did was I had a picture of, of my friend that I lost in the war. And it said, this should have been you. Earn this life. Now, that's an intense thing to look at every day. But this I started doing once I started getting out of that pain slowly, right? One step at a time. I'm getting out of that pain. Then you you turn those demons into something purposeful. And there's no sort of one magical mark you hit when you say, okay, now X, I'm there. That's kind of just each, we got to navigate that journey. But first, we just got to sit with that pain, understand what the demons that drive us there and, and work one step at a time, really reducing it one step at a time. And once you get to point, whatever that point is, we kind of know it within you get there. Like that's when I put that picture up on my friend up my wall and it said, this should have been you earned this life. And my guilt became my fuel. Using that guilt, I drove, wrote my book, Fear of Honor, and I led to the work that I now do. And I still navigate demons, man. Like every human being, we go through our low moments. But now I've learned to use those demons as an access point to my worthy struggle, to my greatness, to serving others, you know, to this vehicle, this mission that I am now here for. But it started with just saying, okay, I just got to get out of this pain. And, and really the essence of that was disassociating myself from like removing the self-identity from my thoughts, feelings, and experiences. Yeah, I That's love that. That's how it started. That's fantastic. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to touch on here when it comes to the embracing of struggle and challenge before we get on to talking a little bit more about the fear side of things and how that holds us back is I think somebody could take this to the extreme end and say like, okay, I'm going to embrace struggle in every single aspect of my life. And that's probably not what we want. Do you feel like it's maybe helpful to think about like balancing struggle in some areas with ease in others? Yeah. So it's the concept that it, looking at Firvana at a meta level, at a higher level, this is a concept that I created called the paradox of singular duality. So in life, there's all these dualities, right? Like life and death, darkness and light, suffering and play, contentment, discontentment, ego, humility, fear and nirvana. So there's all these dualities and we often demonize one side of the duality. We say ego is bad, discontentment is bad, suffering is bad, but it's not that one side is bad or good. It's, it's actually the idea is, and that's why I call the paradox of singular duality. It's in the union of these up seemingly contradictory forces, these seemingly opposing dualities that we actually find the true spiritual awakening and spiritual awakening is actually the oneness of all dualities. So this is kind of looking at Firavana at a higher level, at a meta level is this idea. So to your point, Yes, it's not just about seeking suffering all the time. And this has actually been a very recent realization for me that in my journey of 
sort of not demonizing words like fear, suffering, pain, adversity, I had started to literally subconsciously demonize words like fear, ease, fun. I mean, like the, as an example, the other day I was running and I, I ran past this post and it said f- like 5k fun run. And my visceral reaction, like subconscious visceral reaction, not even a choice, was disgust. Like, you don't run for fun. That's bullshit. You run to suffer. Now, that's not, <laughs> and it was interesting that I noticed. And what I noticed by, like, by pushing so far into this edge, I was creating suffering in unnecessary areas where it just did not need to be there, you know? So there is meaning, and I'm all about seeking a worthy suffering. But yeah, like you said, it's not just about always having to do that. So I had gone so far because everything about Fearvana was combating the demonization of like often when I do talks I'll start with showing words like fear stress anxiety pain suffering adversity and ask people how many of you think of these as positive words nobody nobody thinks of these as positive words no matter where you do this anywhere in the world right so combating that had pushed me to the other edge so the idea with the singular duality is playing on the edges of all dualities you know, choose one that's causing you the most friction. So for me, it was suffering and play. Now you can choose whatever words, so ignore the semantics of it, but moving into the other edge of this duality. So if you look at it as a spectrum, right? Pushing into the other edge and seeing what you discover, like going only on the edges will you learn something. Only on the edges will you discover something about who you are. And then you'll come back and find your line. Like I will always be somebody who will lean towards the edge of suffering. But by pushing into the edge of play, I now have new tools, new acts, new new things, because we don't know what we don't know. So we're going to stay within our own paradigms of the world, our own comfort zone. So suffering can become its own comfort zone. Like even, for example, writing my book, I used to procrastinate by running a marathon. Literally, I would go run a marathon. Now, running a marathon wasn't easy, but it was a suffering I was comfortable with, right? And I had to step outside of that and recognize that the true worthy struggle I need to do here is writing. That was the true worthy struggle. So by pushing into the other edge of the duality, I now have new tools, new access points, discovering things that I didn't know I didn't know because I'm stepping outside my current paradigm of the world, which is the lens of, you know, embracing suffering, going into play. So experiencing things like doing fun runs. I would do runs while listening to like Christina Aguilera and Backstreet Boys and really silly music, you know, and just having a blast with it or dancing, you know, like I remember one one retreat we went to where they would do these little dance breaks and hula hoops and like fun things. I was more uncomfortable doing that than if somebody said, let's do a hundred burpees, I would have been more comfortable doing that than like the dancing and hula hoops and all that light kind of playful stuff. But dabbling in that allowed me new access points. Now I can bring play into my suffering. So yeah, to your point, you know, you want to explore the edge of each duality and you're going to find something tremendous on each one of the edges. And like one of the most profound visceral examples of this, when I spent seven days in a darkness retreat, I had gone into this darkness retreat, seven days, 24, seven pitch darkness, silence, and isolation. And five days into the darkness, I saw the brightest white light I've ever seen in my entire life, like blindingly white blindingly bright light. And I was literally touching my eyelids because I couldn't tell if my eyelids were open or closed anymore. I felt like I needed an eye mask to sleep. I was like covering my eyes, but I'm in a pitch dark room. And it was this beautiful, really deep, like spiritual experience, profound experience of seeing how light and dark can coexist as it one. And it's, that's, that's the idea. That's the spiritual awakening. To me, I believe enlightenment is a moment of recognizing the oneness of a duality where you truly know it. You don't just like, it's one thing to rationally hear it and be like, oh, I get it. But it's another thing to know it by experiencing it, right? So uh, that's, I mean, everything I do is pushing into the, all those edges in every edge and uh, seeking new new frontiers, new awakenings. Yeah. So after exploring some of those edges, it sounds like you've built in a lot of suffering and challenge into your daily, weekly, general life routine. Have you now, and how have you now built in, you know, joy, ease, contentment? 
Is that something that you've now integrated into your life that you're actually like taking time and making space for those on a regular basis? You know, so by pushing into the category of play again, I discovered where on that line I said, and as I said, I'm always going to be, this is just me. Everybody's got their own, and you, you, like when you push into duality, you'll find which, where on that line you sit, right? I'm always going to lean to the, the suffering edge. So I don't necessarily do things like dance and all that, but I do incorporate like fun runs now a little bit more often than I do. I do embrace ease, like literally sometimes while working out or working on my business, especially because I struggle more with like working on my business, like sitting there on my computer, I struggle a lot more. It's easier for me to go out there and go running and stuff like that, be out into the world, you know? So, and, and sometimes it's as simple as saying, I choose for this to be easy. Literally, just, I mean, it's nothing complicated, but literally talk, and then I, when I say I literally talk out loud to myself, I'm choosing for this to feel easy, to be easy, and that's it, and it changes your dynamic, it changes how you approach it. So if I'm struggling with, let's say, writing a sales page or something like that, right, I'll say I choose for this to feel easy, instead of being like, all right, suffer, let's go, you know, into the grind, and, and, and it's literally as simple as that, so I've started practicing embracing ease in that area, like not viewing because i mean i literally had a visceral disgust as i was saying to even hearing the word easy and now i'm i'm working on changing that it's still a little bit of a work in progress but i am like working on embracing ease and allowing ease to show up allowing things to feel easy at time and that's okay you know uh so again it doesn't mean that i stop like suffering but even sometimes in the gym the, the workout will be brutal but in my mind i'm like i want this to feel easy I'm choosing for this to feel easy, right? But it's still a hard workout. So just, it's a mental reframe. I bring that mindset. I bring the joy. I bring the ease. I bring the comfort into my suffering. And on the flip side, I also spend more time like recovering, you know, like training for, because like everything, you got to balance here, right? Stress has to be balanced with recovery. You, when you work out in the gym, you also got to recover. That's how you get stronger. So doing more things for recovery and allowing myself to feel that and be okay with it, you know, like not feeling guilty if I'm spending time, like over here, I'm alone, but when I'm in India, I spend time with family, not feeling guilty like I should be working. So just being conscious about switching off and being like, okay, this is now family time. This is recovery time. This is that time to embrace the you know to just to just relax whatever it may be so uh viewing viewing that as recovery has helped me it's also helped me train harder because if you recover hard if you train hard you got to recover hard you know so same thing so so embracing the ease and comfort of that process as well uh, that's awesome so we've been talking a lot about the importance of finding that worthy struggle that is going to keep us motivated and working towards this big goal that you know hopefully happiness is going to ensue from pursuing mm -hmm. that that worthy struggle mm -hmm. But as you talk about a lot, one of the things that shows up and holds us back from actually like committing to that struggle and, and achieving whatever it is we're seeking out to achieve is fear. So kind of like I mentioned before, looking at your life, there are plenty of opportunities where anyone might look at you and be like, yeah, there are plenty of opportunities. I get that he experiences fear all the time. He puts himself through all these insane circumstances, but probably most people listening to this, they cannot relate to that. So I'm curious for someone who is, you know, working in a business, they are, are building their business themselves or an entrepreneur. What are some of these like everyday experiences of fear? Like how do they show up for us? And what's the kind of detrimental effect that they have on achieving our goals? Yeah, you know, fear shows up in multiple contexts from the basics, fear of failure, fear that I'm going to like in the context of business and building a business, right? I'm going to try this and it's going to go to hell. It's not going to work out. Now, we live in a world that says, be fearless. Don't be scared. You know, don't fear failure. 
And that's the huge flaw. Like I was working with one entrepreneur who said to me, I'm just, or who was about to start his business. I'm just waiting for the fear to go away so I can quit my job and start my business. Because he thought he should be fearless. He thought he should just be confident as you step into action. But you can't be confident at something you've never done before. So the, the key thing is being starting off, the fundamental thing is being okay with fear when it shows up. I don't like the term irrational fear because we don't control what happens in our subconscious brain. Like right now, if I'm sitting in this room and somebody comes in with a gun, my brain's gonna respond with fear. I'm not pausing to say, you know what? I'm choosing to feel afraid. I'm going to feel fear. That's a normal, natural response to the unknown, to a risk. And it's the same thing in business. Our brain reacts with fear. We don't control how it responds because as I said, like we don't control most of what happens in our brain. Neuroscience has shown this. Spirituality talks about this as well. Like we don't control what, what the, the, the initial response to stimuli. So fundamentally, the first starting point when it comes to fear and anything in navigating the unknown is being okay when it shows up not judging it, not trying to resist it, not trying to eliminate it, just being with it. Okay, cool, I'm scared of failing. Okay, God, great, now what can I do with it? So I always like to say that fear propels you to prepare. When you engage it, fear propels you to prepare. So what do you do when you have that fear of failure, building a business, right? You wanna start, you wanna start, launch this new product. Engage the fear, understand the fear. What am I scared of? Why am I scared? What's the worst case scenario? And like journal, write this down. You know, I, I did this when I, when I was writing my book. I was terrified of writing a bad book. I was terrified that nobody would read it. People would think I'm stupid. People would think it's shitty. I would get that dreaded one-star review on Amazon, any one of those things, right? So what did I do? I engaged the fear. Why am I scared? What am I scared of? What's the worst case scenario? And because I engaged the fear, I studied from authors like Jack Canfield, the Chicken Soup for the Soul author, Tim Ferriss, authors who have clearly produced great books, who know how to write well. And I said, okay, what are they doing? How do I, how do I write a better book? So because I was scared of writing a bad book, I engaged that fear and that fear allowed me to write a better book, a book that is now worthy of being endorsed by the Dalai Lama and is out there making a difference, you know? And but and I don't say this with any ego, it's that because I was scared, it led to me. I mean, I trashed like 100,000 words worth of work. That's months, 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 months worth of work. But it was my fear that led me to writing a better book that now I'm truly proud of. So you want to engage the fear, understand the fear, understand what's the worst case scenario. How do you prepare for it? And once you do that, the fear is not gonna go away. I mean, maybe it will for some people, but more often than not, it's not gonna go away. So that comes back to falling in love with that experience of that discomfort. Okay, great, I'm scared. But when you stop judging it, when you stop beating yourself up for it, you can allow yourself to feel it and use it and choose how you engage it. Like a great example of this is, I took a friend climbing and it was a very like easy climb for me. So we were on the climb and she was terrified, absolutely terrified, right? Came back from the climb and started beating herself up. Like, what's wrong with me? I was scared, you weren't scared. You know, if I'm scared of this little thing, how am I gonna write that book? How am I gonna build a business? She was wanting to write a book and build a business, stuff like that. And the thing is, the only reason I was not scared on that climb was because I had climbed way tougher routes before that. So it's not that I was any stronger than her. My brain had references that said, look, this is not a risk. We don't we don't need fear right now, so we're, we're good, right? Like, this was easy to me only because I had more references from having climbed. But it took more courage on her part to climb because she had fear. Like courage cannot exist without fear. Now the, the problem was not the fear. The problem was her response to it. I call this the second darts, like the second darts of suffering. So Buddha said we're all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control, the emotion. We don't control how that happens. Like the analogy I like to I always like to give is if I stub my toe against a door, the first dart is the pain in the toe. 
The second dart is when I start saying things like, this door is stupid, why do bad things only happen to me, God hates me, all that kind of stuff, right? And it's the same thing with our emotions. We have that fear, we have that anxiety, then we say things like, I'm a piece of shit, I'm weak, what's wrong with me? Uh, everybody, you know, everybody else isn't scared, so I'm, I'm a coward. That self-dialogue is the second dart, and we have to watch those second darts and let go of that judgment, let go, what, this is what I call the second dart syndrome, is when we fall into that spiral of these second dart conversations, Be, and we all know that, right? Like the inner voice of just beating ourselves up about everything. So when we stop and allow ourselves to feel, like I do these crazy things, right? Crazy things, skiing across ice caps. I've, and I wasn't, also a quick note, I wasn't always this way. I used to be terrified of Ferris wheels when I was a kid, like Ferris wheels, let alone the thing, things that I do now. So I built this over time by engaging fear. Like everything I did from caving to skydiving to ice diving, everything, absolutely terrified me. I was scared of heights. I was scared of tight spaces. So I engaged that fear one step at a time. It wasn't that I was fearless. I did it because it scared me, right? And so even though I've done all these things, sometimes just sitting in the house alone, I live in a very safe neighborhood, great neighborhood. I'll feel these pangs of fear and anxiety. And like before I used to be like, what's wrong with me? Like, what, why am I scared? I've done so much crazy shit. And now I'm like, you know what? fear shows up and I don't I allow myself to feel it whenever it shows up. It's not about how it shows up, why it shows up, when it shows up. It just, it shows up. Now, what am I going to do with it? So I understand it and I move forward with it, you know? So um, the key thing is not beating ourselves up when that fear shows up and then engaging it and using it to understand it and ultimately then prepare and, and use it as fuel to take purposeful action. I love what you mentioned there. You mentioned Tim Ferriss, who was someone that he had this idea that is where I first heard it of thinking about what's the worst that could happen, uh, which you mentioned as well there. And I know when I was first going to quit my day job and start going full-time on my business, I was also going to start traveling full-time. They were kind of lined up together and I was feeling some concern over like, you know, what if I lose all my clients? What if all this happens and that happens and all these things. And I had been listening to a lot of Tim Ferriss at the time. And that question came to me in that moment kind of, and I was like, okay, what is actually the worst thing that's going to happen if I lose all my clients? Like, well, probably the worst thing is I, I can't keep traveling anymore. I'd need to come back home. Maybe I move in with my parents. Like, okay, that's, it's kind of embarrassing. I'm, but I was still like, you know, 25 at the time. There's plenty of 25 year olds who move back in with their parents, especially yeah. now given this pandemic. But like, <laughs> if that's really the worst that could happen, and then I could just get another job and I'd be right back where I was. And I was like, well, actually, so I haven't even really moved backwards at all is the worst that could happen. So why am I so scared of, of this, of taking this step? If really there, there is no downside almost, it would be a little bit embarrassing maybe, but for the payoff, the potential payoff, like that is a, you know, great odds basically. Absolutely. Exactly. Love it. Yeah. So you understand it and then you get clear on what the, what that scenario is. And then you can also start figuring out an action plan to prevent it. Right. How do I prevent that, that scenario? And for one, you're recognizing it's not as bad as you really thought. And even if it is, I mean, sometimes when I do, like when I was training for Greenland, the worst case scenario was death, right? I could literally die out there and people have died on the ice cap. So by engaging that though, I prepared for it. Like I used to drag, that, that was when I first started dragging tires around the streets of Jersey. I've started up again because I'm preparing for polar expeditions, but these things, the worst case scenario is death. And there's something tremendously beautiful about that uh, when you have to navigate the death, but it allows you to engage and really prepare for that. So you prevent that, you know, prevent that worst case scenario. Yeah. Kind of talking about some of the fears here. I, again, these are kind of like some big fears sometimes that when we think about fear, that's a very visceral emotion that has a lot of weight to it. And kind of tying back into some of the stuff that you were talking about earlier when it came to joy and fun and play and ease and all these things. I think those are very relatable for a lot of people who listen to this show who are entrepreneurs and like things like slowing down or just surrendering or, you know, being less than perfect perfectionism. 
those are all things that I think are much more relatable to a lot of people when it comes to, you know, we might not label those with fear, but really there is a sense like if I slow down, like I'm going to lose my clients or like things are going to lapse and like the business is going to crumble. And that's probably not true at all. You should probably need to slow down and like spend more time like unplugging and getting away from your computer or else there are going to be negative uh, effects that come from that. And I think I've also heard you talk about that emotions like stress and anxiety, you kind of lump in with fear here too, where it's like, we're going to feel those things and we have to choose how we respond to those. And, and those are going to be present in every single person's life, especially if you're building a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're always going to be present, but you balance that stress with recovery, right? Like, I mean, just like, again, physically, like we're talking about, when you stress your body, you need to recover to get stronger. It's the same thing with the mind and the spirit. We need the stress. We got to seek out that stress because that's how we evolve. And similarly, we need to recover. Now, we each get to choose our own path. Like there are the sort of the entrepreneurial style that says no days off. And there's nothing wrong with like, there's no right or wrong. We each ultimately we got to choose our own. Some people choose to take time off and they want to spend whatever they want to travel. They want to spend. I know people who want to take three days off a week. And that's again, there's no right or wrong if that's the path you want to choose. So it's really about getting clear on who you want to be, what, like, ultimately we are playing a game within ourselves for our own neurochemicals, right? Like our own, well, like on a neurological level, like how do we create the neurochemical formula within ourselves of the dopamine, the anandamide, the endorphins, and also on a spiritual level, what do you want, right? Like who, what's your worthy struggle? What's your path? And then you get to decide and then choose that. and, And it'll take a lot of experimentation, you know, saying, okay, let me try this okay, you know what? This doesn't work. Maybe I don't want to take a a days off or maybe, you know what? I do want to take one day or two days off. And, and what does that look like? So like viewing life as an experiment, as a game is a really fun and much more effective way to approach it. You know, like I don't like, I mean, if I take it, usually for me taking a day off is an evening after like, let's say a long run. So after I did that 24 hour run, I chilled out for a little bit, watched a movie and then went, you know, went to bed, but I don't, I don't take like a full day off and then not to like, there's nothing right or wrong or about it. It's just a choice that I made over time practicing. Now, maybe once I get a family and kids, almost certainly I'll take time to be with, spend time with my kids and stuff like that, right? The game will change once my dynamic changes. And that is something I want long-term. And it's a little challenging because of the social media world we live in. We're always surrounded by people telling us who we should be, how we should live, what should, what should be the right quote unquote right path to pursue. So sometimes it's hard to get clear on, okay, everybody who's doing X, Y, Z that I want to do is saying, this is how to do it. And then there's other people who are saying otherwise, right? So which path should I choose? Because again, in the entrepreneurial circle on the one category is like no days off, take time off. You know, they'll say both. And it's like, which one should I do? You got to experiment. You got to play. And you really want to like learn from others. Use, use social media as a tool for inspiration. But like I was saying, knowledge is from others. Wisdom is from within. So you got to cut that off at some point and go within and take, take action. Learn by doing, you know, experiment, play, and then you will figure out what's your path. Like I've really figured out that for me now, pursuing expeditions is far more my, like Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, like follow my bliss is that more than, you know, and this might slow down my business a little bit because when I'm spending three months dragging ice, you know, dragging sleds across ice cap, inevitably I'm not working on my business during that time. Now, at some degree, it does help grow my business because doing these crazy things has like grown my brand, but I'm not working on my business in those three months. So it's slowing that down, but that's okay. Like now only recently I've really gotten clear that that's my bliss. That's who I want to be is doing those things, you know, pursuing, exploring the edges of the human experience in all its forms out in the world. And it might slow it down a little bit in terms of, you know, how I sitting down at the computer, I'm not spending as much time. 
but that's okay. I'm okay with that, you know, because every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else and vice versa. But the key is we want to do that consciously and make that very, very conscious of who you want to be, how you want to live your life and then experiment, play and start figuring out which path you want to take. Yeah. The one other thing that comes to mind when it comes to relatable experiences of very, very negative emotions, this one, I think there was a point after you'd written Fearvana where you kind of had a relapse into alcoholism, I believe. It might have just been one day or one experience, but where like you were kind of past this, you'd written a book on it, basically, of confronting those feelings and getting through it. And I think a lot of us who are trying to establish ourselves as the expert in our field, whatever that is, like we are the go-to authority and like we know better than anyone else. We've done the research. And that's a lot of pressure to like live up to that and stay on that path. And there's, you know, there's eyeballs on you at that point. And so I think that that the fear of not being able to live up to that kind of expectation that you've set for yourself holds a lot of people back from really like stepping into their potential. So I'm curious to hear like what that taught you after you've written the book, after you've developed this framework, seeing that like, oh, like I still have work to do. Like, how did you come back from that? And what were some of the feelings associated with that? Yeah. You know, what happened was I'd gone through a very challenging divorce, a crazy situation. I'm still, you know, still care about uh, my now ex, but went through that. And it was a whole new struggle that I hadn't experienced really, you know, uh, I'd had relationships that ended and all that, but this was a different beast ending with my wife for eight years. And it led me into this. And when I fall, I, I, I do everything pretty to an extreme level, as you probably gather. So I, when I break, I break, I broke hard. Like I drank, you know, very, very hard. And it, yeah, it was in one sense. Now, like you said, I'd written Fearvana. I'm out there. People see me a certain way. I view myself a certain way and I fall, you know, and that's what actually led me to the darkness retreat because I, I, I'm not saying I'm necessarily going to drink again, but I'm going to fall. I'm going to slip again. And and the key thing is recognizing that when every fall, there is a new growth to be had if we seek it. So in, in the context of navigating that fear, like I'm very open about my story. I share it openly. Some people might judge me. Some people might not. I don't care. You know, ultimately I do that openly because it, and actually I found that it draws people like people appreciate the authenticity and vulnerability for anyone listening. So building a business and having that fear that I got to be perceived this way don't take away from the fact that you're a human. Like everybody's human. Everybody understands that we all suffer. And the more you try to put this frame on that I don't have these, I'm perfect, the less human you become. And I've seen a lot of people who are now really famous, I won't name names, but I've heard some of the stories they tell. And it's like, dude, you're just so removed from reality now. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're you just, you're not, like you're not connecting with your audience because you're so removed from reality. And look, the, if somebody has a hundred million dollars, they still have some struggles. You know, so so just really being open about it, like, look, these are my demons that I still wrestle with, you know, and sharing that. And and thing is, like, to me, it's not about avoiding the low moments or avoiding the demon. It's about recognizing it and being getting the goal is to get faster at transcending that demon. So I slipped, but I took very proactive action to address that problem, right? I went into a darkness retreat. I'm not saying everybody has to choose that action, obviously. Uh, now, granted, that's an extreme path, but nonetheless, it was, I took proactive action. Since the darkness retreat, I have falls, I've had mistakes, I've had low moments, but I'm always learning. And the key thing is like, is that. It's like, like the great analogy is meditation. You know, when you meditate, it's near impossible to maintain that no, no thought for long. But the goal is not to maintain a lack of thought. The goal is to notice the thought when it arises and bring it back. So I actually use that mantra. Everybody can have their own mantra. My mantra is very simple. Bring it back. Like 
When a thought happens, bring it back. Bring it back to the silence. Bring it back to the stillness. And reminding myself that the goal is not absence of thought, but the goal is to keep bringing it back. And it's the same thing in the fall. You know, when you go through this journey of building a business and you, you, your world views you a certain way, you're a human. They're going to appreciate the fact that you have struggles. People see me and they know I have low moments. They know I've fallen even after writing Fearvana, but they're also seeing that I'm living this path still. Like I'm, I ran 24 hours recently, you know, I'm, I'm seeking growth and I, I'm going to make all kinds of mistakes in the future. As I pursue harder things, there's going to be falls. But what I do always know is that I've become now the kind of person who's always looking for the next way to rise back up, the next awakening, the next learning on the other side of every fall. So I think it's just being open to it, not just for the world, but more importantly for yourself, you know? Don't like run from your demons, confront those demons, face those demons, realize those demons, understand those demons, acknowledge them. And you learn like one of my other mantras is that the greater your demons, the greater the divinity required to rise above them. I love that. And I recently read this book. I don't know if you've read this before. It's called Walking by Erling Cog, I think. And as someone who has done a lot of walking, I think you'd really enjoy it. I was like, read it and I was like, oh, I relate so strongly to all of this. But he's done a lot of like polar explorations and expeditions and all these types of things. And he's also something of a philosopher. But he talks about in the book how the greater the the pain and the greater the misery, the closer you actually are to joy and how like it kind of expands outward from the middle. Like the more uh, your experience of negative emotions, the greater your experience of positive is going to be in your life. And if you just go for the middle, you're going to have a very narrow kind of bandwidth there. So that kind of comes to mind for that. I'm curious, short of going on darkness retreats and all these long distance expeditions, when it comes to confronting fear and your demons, like, do you have any daily practices or weekly practices that people can like actually just implement into their day to confront fear, even if it's in little ways? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can, from if they're like single, going to talking to a a woman or a man, you know, outside is scary. There's all those little things, but like the number one way to engage fear and suffering, the way I see it is exercise. Barring serious physical issues, almost everybody can do, anybody can do it. And exercise is the best thing you can do for your brain neurologically. One neuroscientist calls it quote unquote miracle growth for the brain. Another neuroscientist says that if you could put the effects of exercise into a pill, it'd be the best selling pill of all time. And exercise teaches you how to engage suffering. It teaches you how to confront fear. Before my 24 hour run, for example, I was terrified. I knew I would I knew it'd be miserable. I knew I would suffer. And now look, again, it doesn't have to be a 24 hour run. It could be a one hour run. It could be doing hundred burpees. The key is that like plan something that's going to scare you. You know, it's going to be horrible. And then you're going to deal with the fear of it. You know, deal with the fear before the workout, the suffering during the workout and the indescribable reward and bliss on the other side of that. So the more you put yourself, I mean, and, and again, barring something serious, physical, anybody can do that. Now there's all kinds of other ways too: meditation, journaling, confronting, going deeper within to understand yourself, to understand what's, what's happening there. You know, that will lead you to some new awakenings, but yeah, confronting fear on a daily basis. I mean, once a week, at least, if not more, you should be putting yourself in a situation where one part of you wants to quit and the other wants to fight, go into these spaces. And when you go into those spaces and you go to war with yourself in that capacity into a, into a conscious war with yourself, because we're having that inner conflict anyway, we're always having that inner conflict, but like my fundamental philosophy, the fundamental philosophy that operate that way I operate my life is that the path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. The path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. So go to war with yourself, seek out that war. Now it can be, again, exercise I think is the best way, but I mean, sitting here writing for me is a going to war with myself, man. Like I struggle with it, you know, <laughs> writing my book is one of the hardest things I've ever done, even more hard, even harder than going to the Marines and many other, th- other things that I've, I've done, you know? So it doesn't always have to be physical, but why I love the physical is because when you go to war with yourself physically, it's the only 
vehicle that confronts all elements. Like when you push yourself in those spaces, you're going into mind, body, and spirit. Whereas if I meditate or I'm writing, I'm not pushing myself physically. I may be pushing myself mentally and spiritually, but I'm not pushing myself physically. Physical suffering delves into all facets of the being, which is why I think it's the greatest way to confront fear, to confront suffering, and to ultimately confront yourself, to go to war with yourself, and to win when you win that war. And you're like going to war with yourself is inherently winning that war, right? Like you might say, okay, I go to war and I quit. Great. You learn something from the moment you quit. I haven't always succeeded everything I've done in my physical endeavors. I've failed plenty of times, but I learn from it and I come back into the next fight, right? I come back into the next fight and I'm continuously going to war. And by doing that, I'm finding new things within myself. And that's how you grow as a human being. It's that growth and growth is so fundamental to true happiness, to fulfillment, to that lasting inner peace, you know? So you got to go to war to find that peace. Yeah. I know you've talked about this idea of post-traumatic growth that doesn't get enough attention that mm-hmm. we always mm-hmm. hear about post-traumatic stress and that there's actually this kind of equal, there, there are so many cases where people who have been through extreme circumstances and I mean, you could scale this back and be, just say exercise. Like there is clearly that is uncomfortable. There is struggle, there is pain and there is growth from that. So like, have you seen any examples of this that like really come to mind of someone who's gone through something difficult in some way that has had extreme growth? And I mean, you are an example of this as well, obviously, but is there anything else that you like to use as an example when you're talking about this concept? You know, I think David Goggins is an absolute legend, a uh, true model of that. I mean, that man has went, went through hell in his life. And you look at, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a veteran turned ultra runner, very famous on the, at, by this point, his book blew up uh, a lot of followers on Instagram, but he's someone I truly admire uh, because I think, again, he has, he has not just knowledge, but wisdom. He's lived it. Horrible abuse of childhood came out of that shit. Like he, at one point he was like 300 pounds, lost all that weight, became a Navy SEAL, now is an ultra runner. So he's lived it. And, and my beef with a lot of sometimes when I see like people in the quote unquote self-help personal industry, They've studied a few things and like just some, just because somebody's good at marketing doesn't inherently give them <laughs> true wisdom right now. And, and again, social media world, it's a whole separate conversation. I can go down that rant, but, <laughs> but the point being is that, yeah, with post-traumatic growth, you know, like following those who have gone through suffering and making that paradigm real. And that matters because it's the paradigms we view the world that become our own self-fulfilling prophecy. Like a great example of this is Dr. Martin Seligman. He's one of the leading researchers in positive psychology. He went to West Point, the military academy, and asked the cadets, how many of you have heard of the word post-traumatic stress disorder? And it was like 95% people raised their hand. And he's like, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic growth? And it was less than 5%. So the problem is it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy that war equals PTSD. I mean, even today, when people hear I'm a veteran, it's like in the US, and I get that it's coming from a place of love, but it's like, oh, poor you, you're probably fucked up in the head. You know, like there's this sense that there's something wrong with me because I've been to war. And that's, I mean, I'm, I'm not condoning war, but the point is that we have created a paradigm that any suffering leads to PTSD. I mean, anybody goes, like in today's world, it's even more so. I mean, uh, uh, because of the elections, people are saying, oh, I got PTSD. Like any little thing now, I got PTSD from this, that, and the other thing, you know? I mean, I was reading I was reading that people are saying, I'm getting PTSD from sitting alone in the house. Dude, you're watching Netflix. You got electricity. You got Wi-Fi. This is like, and I understand, look, I'm not saying everybody's suffering is their own suffering. So it's not like, okay, just because I'm not in a war zone or in in a genocide, I can't suffer. No, like everybody goes through their suffering, but we've created a paradigm of the world that any little adversity means an PTSD. You know, we throw that label on them. We throw, oh, you're going through depression. It's like, no, man. I mean, any adversity, if we reframe that post-trauma can lead to growth. Adversity can lead to like lead to bliss, you know? So the whole idea is that becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy. But 
again, because of negativity bias, the world feeds on fear. That's why news media feeds into it because that's activates our brain, right? But we should not be highlighting that. Like there was this example of this veteran who wrote the suicide note a few years ago. It went viral on Gawker, right? Like viral. And everybody was like, we should share this more. And I'm like, no, you should not be sharing this more because now it tacitly condones suicide as a viable option for the next veteran reading that who's struggling. What we should be sharing more of is stories of post-traumatic growth because that becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy. People will then fall into the paradigm that, oh, it'll just be normal. It won't even become something conscious. Now what's normal, quote unquote, is that war equals trauma equals disorder. But that paradigm can be shifted to say trauma equals growth. Any suffering equals growth. And if that becomes normal, if that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, we will subconsciously fall into that paradigm, let alone consciously pursuing it. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's not even necessarily just about saying that trauma equals growth, but that even by introducing the other side, that implies a choice, that there is no predetermined route. And the, so the thing that when you're talking about that, that brought up something interesting to me is thinking about, you mentioned like the state of the country right now and everything that's going on politically. And you could choose to view that as like, you know, we in, I mean, I'm not American, but in the US, and this is obviously there are global uh, kind of currents happening that there are people like, you know, Trump and Boris Johnson and other kind of populist leaders who have come to power in many places in the world. And clearly like we as humanity are going through something, but and it's easy to feel really like hopeless and all that. But if you view it as like, yeah, there's a lot of like trauma and struggle going on, like there's an opportunity to create something so much better on the other side of this, which is like a really hopeful kind of idea. Absolutely. And you're seeing people rise up in defiance of sort of uh, hate, animosity, you know, division, divisiveness. You're seeing people rise up to create greater unity, you know. So, yeah, like you said, you know, on an individual scale as well as a global scale, on any scale that this suffering and, and it's hard it's hard to witness it i mean when you look at uh, uh, any kind of global suffering or anybody's suffering it is hard to witness it we don't want it but so when you can't control it all you can then do is look for the hope look for the purposeful action look for the things you can control to lead to that next growth on the other side if there's adversity again individually and collectively for our entire human family and that's what i mean you know in our own way we're doing that with our work right like with i'm trying to do that individually and collectively to bring people from fear into nirvana right so to kind of bring it back to the listeners of this show, a lot of them are in the health and wellness space and they work with either clients or patients to help them, you know, improve their own health. And so a lot of times, you know, there are a lot of scary aspects of health, whether you have a disease or whether you just have lifestyle habits that, you know, 30 years from now, like, you know, I know I'm, I'm not treating my body well and that's probably going to lead to problems, but, you know, so I have to confront that. So I'm curious for the people who are listening to this show, whether they're doctors or practitioners or health coaches or something like that. Do you have any advice for them on how they can like recognize fear in their clients and patients and help them address that as a part of their healing process? Yeah, you know, usually any barrier that somebody is going through in any context at the core of it is some fear. You know, uh, one neuroscientist, Joseph Ledeau, says fear is the most primal emotion, and it is. So whatever they're doing, there's some fear at the core of it driving some barrier when they're like, if I'm procrastinating, it's usually a fear. Like, I mean, at a simple level, right? If I'm, it's, it's a fear of something, a fear that this is going to fail, so I just won't do it, you know? So getting deeper to the roots of understanding, and you can, you know, there's a lot, lot to that. I mean, if you're a health and wellness coach, you're, you're familiar with the process of like asking questions to dig deeper into it. But ultimately what we're doing when we're understanding the fear is then translating it into how do you create long-term sustainable behavior change? Now, this is the hardest battle, right? Like, how do you create that in your clients? So like you said, I might be taking actions that 30 years are going to have that effect, uh, that negative effect for me, but Am I really going to change my actions? 
you know, and, and that's, that's the hardest part. Like Marshall Goldsmith, one of the leading executive coaches, he says, adult behavior change is the hardest thing for sentient human beings to accomplish. So how do we navigate that? Now, the key thing on the one hand is falling in love with suffering, right? So if you want to call the duality of like control and surrender and will and habits, that's another duality. There's the willpower. So we got to build that will like anything. It's a muscle. It can be developed. The other thing is building systems. So long-term sustainable behavior change is extremely hard. I have a friend who works in a behavior design lab, and she was telling me how people after they have surgery, they'll take their pills for whatever for like two weeks because now they're in immediate pain. They're feeling the immediate pain. So they'll take their pills. Two weeks later, they're done. They go back to their old ways. So one is recognizing, and uh, Dr. Daniel Kahneman, he's a Nobel Prize psychologist, wrote this amazing book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He says, the brain is naturally lazy. It will always retreat to the laziest and easiest course of action. So by accepting that, by realizing that, we can say, okay, cool. Now I got to combat that. And we could create, create systems around it. So helping your clients create systems to navigate their fear. So it's kind of navigating the systems element, this is creating those systems to build habits and navigating that will, understanding what are they truly scared of? What is that? What's that fear that driving their actions and then creating systems around it. So having systems allows you to transcend your feelings. Having systems allows you to not operate from your feelings because if you operate from your feelings, you're going to retreat to that laziest, easiest course of action. So I have systems for everything. Like a morning routine is a checklist. My night routine is a checklist. I have this little thing that I keep with me. I call it my little spirit armory to tap into my warrior spirit where I use everything in here is like there's systems for everything. My morning smoothie is the exact same smoothie every single day. You know, uh, I have a system for my one. Like, for example, Tuesday is a two a day. So if I'm like, like this other day, this happened, I do a two a day training. The second shift of the day, I was really exhausted. I didn't feel like going. I'd been working hard, training hard, all that kind of stuff. But my system said I had to go. So I went, I said, you know, even if I just do one mile, it's just at least one mile, I get in my two a day. But one mile became five miles because I'd gone out there. The hardest part, like stepping out that door, right? So I went out there and it became that. So helping your clients develop that systems and understanding what is the root cause of their barriers that are holding them from taking that that action and then making sure you translate it into long-term sustainable behavior change because neurologically we're not wired to think long-term you know we're, we're we still have that caveman cavewoman like brains right so we didn't even live that long way back when and we, we lived in a consumption way like we had food we ate it because there wasn't a way to store food so we are wired that way that's why we love spending money that's why we love doing all these things where we don't think long term so you really have to remember that to be successful by any context of that word, financially, physically, we are kind of combating evolutionary wiring to say, you know what? It's not just about eating all I can right now because we don't live in a world where, you know, we, we have to eat that thing. Otherwise it's going to go bad, right? Like now that we have excess, so we have to combat that, but simply by becoming aware of it, we can recognize it and then obviously take purposeful action and build the systems around it to change it. Every Sunday, I send out my Listen Up newsletter to over a thousand entrepreneurs, marketers, and creatives who are seeking to grow an audience around work that means something. Each week features an article to help you reframe how you're approaching your business, along with five things I discovered the previous week that I think might help you in your life and business. Instead of another tactic or strategy to add to your never-ending to-do list, the newsletter is meant to help you rise above the noise and look at your work from a new perspective. It's best consumed sitting somewhere cozy with a cup of coffee in your hand, which is exactly how I write it. Writing this newsletter is my very favorite thing I do in my business, and it's something I'm truly proud to create and share. I'd be honored to send it to you, and you can sign up at betterwellness.biz slash newsletter. So uh, last question here. I like to say that this is a show about building a better world that is disguised as a show about building better businesses. So I'm curious, when you hear the phrase building better, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? 
unity, oneness, alignment, you know, I think uh, within and without creating greater alignment within mind, body, spirit, our mission and without and the external world of alignment of the human family coming together to serve the greater and the collective good. I mean, that's the one thing that I absolutely loved about the Marines, separate from the politics of the war. You know, it's a brotherhood coming together to serve a mission, to serve that camaraderie we felt we worked as one in service of something greater. Again, separate from all the politics of the war, but on the ground, we were there to do some good. And that's, to me, is what building better is, is alignment within and alignment without. And do you think we're, uh, do you have hope that we as a uh, community and society are on the path there? It sometimes feels a little <laughs> feels a little hard to see it when you're when you see so much of uh, our world going the other way with more divisiveness than ever before. But I do think that from that kind of what we talked about, I think that more can come, and I have hope. Um, and ultimately, I'm, I'm taking purposeful action. People, there are people like you, like people like me out there. There's a lot of people who are rising up in defiance of this kind of divisiveness to bring people together. And let's just uh, keep. I, I mean. Ultimately, there's always going to be some battle to be fought. Whether when this when this current paradigm of this this current struggles end, there'll be something new. So I don't know if like world peace, if let's put it that way, will ever happen. There'll always be conflict, but I think we can at least work towards creating greater unity within our human family through evolved consciousness by saying, look, we can we might have differences, but we can at least work together in those differences for something greater. You know, so. Uh, I have a degree of hope and I'm taking purposeful action. And even if it's like, like, I mean, like you're here doing this, right? Like, I love what you said. It's about building a better world, not just building a better business. So if you affect one life, that's one life closer on the journey, you know, two lives, two lives, so on and so forth. Right. So it sometimes feels a bit daunting when you do see everything seem to go the other way. Right. But just always bringing it like for me, what helps is always bringing it back to what can I control? So I try to just ignore the craziness of what I, what I can control and look at what I can control and how can I help? And if I can help one life, let's just start there. You know, that's one life that's now more aligned and more one feeling more one within that ultimately then leads to greater peace. Cause I mean, like I think it was Gandhi said, if you want to change the world or somebody, I forget who it was, but if you want to change the world, start by changing yourself, you know? So if we can create that internal alignment, help people on their personal journey, it will lead to greater evolved in consciousness that will lead to greater external unity as well. This conversation with Akshay was one of the highlights for me of producing this podcast so far. As someone with a love for adventure, the outdoors, and long-distance human-powered expeditions myself, it's always a treat to talk with someone else who's cut from the same cloth. That said, I'm not putting myself anywhere near the same category as Akshay when it comes to that stuff. You can follow Akshay on Instagram at Fearvana, that's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A, and find out more about him and his phenomenal book at Fearvana.com. Of course, you'll be able to find those links and more in the show notes for this episode at betterwellness.biz slash 026. This episode was produced by our amazing team at Counterweight Creative. Big thanks in particular to Tom Kelly for sound engineering support, Karina Penner for her work on the show notes, Ari Lombardozzi for his help with video editing, and Casey Bowen and Francesca Mamlin for their behind-the-scenes work keeping everything running smoothly and on schedule. Finally, to you listening, thank you for spending this time with me, and until next time, keep building better. Better.